turn to, actually, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, we got the wrong. That's my fault. Uh, went through a lot of different passages this week. But Hebrews chapter 1 is the one we're going to look at. Um, I've got it on page 1254. If so, if your Bible is a brown one that has um, the words Creston Christian Reformed Church printed on the front, uh, 1254 is where you'll find it. Otherwise, it's probably somewhere near there in whatever Bible you have. And we're just going to read the first few verses, and we'll talk more about the book as we go through the sermon. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the word of the Lord. I heard someone say once that all all of us preachers uh, even if we've been preaching for a very long time, uh, all of us really only have like one or like maybe possibly two sermons that we really preach. Um, I, I think this was this person's way of saying that all preachers kind of have their own style. I guess some people might say uh, all preachers uh, have their own ruts that they get stuck in. I'm not sure, depending on your perspective. We'll be, we'll be optimistic here. Um, all preachers have their own style a tone or themes that they come back to. Like we all kind of have a pattern of how to get through a passage in a sermon. And you know, I've been preaching here at Creston long enough that I bet some of you can predict what I'm going to do next in a sermon. My style is clear enough, or maybe you would say my rut is deep enough uh, that you can see it coming. So maybe in the beginning, you know, I could still surprise you, but now my surprises are a lot less Surprising. I actually have this fear. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid to admit it. I don't want to put any ideas in anybody's head, but I bet that a number of you, if you were so inclined, could probably do a pretty good imitation of me preaching a sermon. I think if, if I actually saw that, I would die many little deaths inside. Um, but you know, like when you do this every single week, you kind of fall into some patterns. Uh, and I hope some of them are good ones, but I'm sure that some of them are bad ones. And one of the things that some of you have noticed and asked me about before is why in almost every sermon I preach do I kind of sort of towards the end bring up Jesus? Uh, Even with passages that I might be preaching that don't really seem to have much at all to do with Jesus, uh, some of you have noticed that not quite every time, but almost every time, I get us back to him anyway. And really the best explanation I have for this is that this is, just, this is my bias. I, 
getting it back to Jesus. I, I think all preachers have biases. We have political biases. We have uh, topics that we kind of go to over and over again. We've got hobby horses. I know that's true. I think all preachers have biases. And I'm sure that this is not my only bias, uh, but I am sure it's my best bias. And biases are important to talk about because this morning we are starting a new series of messages looking at the whole Bible. Um, <laughs> so normally when we do a series, uh, we, we take like a close look at one book of the Bible for a period of time. So we, did, we just finished seven weeks in Revelation and then if you were here last summer, you know that we did 14 weeks in the book of Philippians. This time, uh, we're going to try to get a sense of the Bible from start to finish, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, and it'll take a little more than a year to do it. But of course, we're not going to look at every verse uh, because we just don't have the time. Uh, instead, we're going to use uh, this uh, Jesus Storybook Bible. We just gave it, I think, to the kids who are... Uh, entering kindergarten, if I remember correctly. Um, and so this is, a, I think it's a very good children's Bible, and we're going to use it as kind of a guide. So this children's Bible has 44 chapters in it, like 44 different Bible stories. Um, I would say it does not have all the most important stories, like it's probably not the 44 most important stories in the Bible, but it's got a lot of really important stories in it. And so every week I'll preach on the part of the Bible that the children's story is based on. And then if you are in a house church small group, which I know a lot of you are, you'll actually read the, the children's story uh, with your group, and you'll talk about that and the sermon later on in the week. But I want to be upfront right from the beginning about our bias in this series. All right? So this children's Bible has a bias, a pretty blatant one, if I might say. Uh, and I'm going to have a bias. I think it'll be pretty blatant too. And that bias is what we've been talking about. The bias is Jesus. Okay. So the subtitle of this Bible is Every Story Whispers His Name. Every Story Whispers Jesus' Name. Now, that is not such a controversial bias if you're talking about like the stories in the second half of the Bible. We call it the New Testament, right? If you've read the New Testament, you know that the, the New Testament doesn't just whisper Jesus' name. It, it practically shouts Jesus' name constantly, okay? But the assumption of this subtitle is that even in the first half of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, even there, long before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, even those stories still in some way point to or whisper to us something about Jesus. Every story whispers his name. That's my bias. And not only do I think that's not a bad bias to have, I actually think the Jesus bias is a great bias. I think it's the Bible's bias, and I think it should be your bias too. Every story whispers his name. And to show you why, let's turn to our passage today. So this is Hebrews 1. Hebrews, Hebrews is a bit of a hybrid book in the Bible. It's, it's both a letter, but also seems to be almost like a sermon that somebody wrote down. Um, it's, it's kind of a combination. But we can tell that it's written by a person who had grown up as a Jew, 
uh, and knew the, the faith of the Hebrews, uh, but then had come to know Jesus and had become a Christian. And he's, he's writing to people in the same situation. So they also had grown up in the Jewish faith, and now they also have gotten to know Jesus, uh, and they are now Christians. Um, and the whole book is kind of focused on showing a Jewish audience how all these different things about their Jewish faith, all these different things from the Hebrew Bible, how all these different things kind of point to Jesus. So the main idea of the book comes out right in the beginning, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Now, prophets, it's important to say, it's kind of a shorthand here for all the writers of the Old Testament. Okay, Not just the ones who wrote books that we call prophetic books, but all the writers of the Old Testament. Okay, And he says that these prophets, or really, as we just said, the, the whole Hebrew Bible, spoke at many times and in various ways. Now, the Greek word for various ways is polytropos. Okay? And many scholars point out that polytropos can also mean many pieces. Okay? Like pieces of a puzzle, many pieces. So you might say that in the past, God spoke through the Hebrew Bible at many times and in many pieces. Now, verse 2. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So, this is just the first few verses, uh, but already, for a Jewish audience... These claims are huge. Okay? The writer of this letter is very strongly suggesting that there is something incomplete about the Hebrew Bible. That the Hebrew Bible, which Jews held in extremely high regard, is missing something. It's not all put together yet. It's not finished. It's polytropos. It's still in many pieces. A big claim. And that would be big enough, it would be bold enough, it would be controversial enough all on its own. But then he goes on. And he says that Jesus, the Son of God, is also the heir of all things. And that through him, God made the universe. And that he is the exact representation of God's being. That he is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Do you see what the writer of this letter is doing? In like just the first two verses. One after another, he's claiming that all these things that the Hebrew faith, the Hebrew Bible associated with God, like sustaining all things, creating the universe, the writer of Hebrews is claiming that the Son of God, who was mentioned exactly zero times by name in the whole Hebrew Bible, nevertheless, that Son of God has been a part of the story the whole time. The Son of God is not some late addition to God's story. He didn't come off the bench in the second half with the sheep and the donkeys in the stable. The Son of God has been in the game from tip-off. He's been in the story from page one, not of the New Testament, not of the Gospel of Matthew. He's been in there since page one of Genesis. Genesis. 
And then the rest of this letter sermon thing to the Hebrews goes one at a time through all these really important elements of the Jewish faith. So angels is the first one, and then the law. It talks about Moses. It talks about the promised land, the priests, the sacrifices, uh, the covenants. And basically, one after another says, what we see of these things in the Hebrew Bible, they're super important there. They're really important, but they were just pieces. We didn't see the whole picture. We didn't understand the full meaning. It is not until Jesus that the pieces come together. It's not until Jesus that we can really understand it. It is not until Jesus that we can see the whole story. And so, for example, Hebrews brings up uh, stuff about the high priest and then says that Jesus is the greater high priest. Okay? And then it brings up stuff about the sacrificial system and says that Jesus is not just uh, another sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. And then it brings up Moses and it says Jesus is actually the new Moses, that he is the completion of the law of God. In other words, the writer here is claiming that virtually every aspect of their Jewish faith can only be understood fully if you see it in reference to Jesus. I mean, you see what a huge claim that is. I mean, in a sense, he is saying that a Jew cannot understand the entirety of their own faith until they get to know Jesus. I mean, that's, it's offensive. That's crazy. But you see, the early church, which was made up almost entirely of Jews, they do this all throughout the New Testament. You've probably noticed this. If you've, if you've gone through the whole New Testament from start to finish, um, you see these, these people see Jesus everywhere. Uh, not just in their lives now that they're Christian, but they look back and they see him all over the Hebrew Bible. They're quoting it constantly, all over their Jewish faith. And sometimes, to be honest, and, and you know this if you've read from start to finish, sometimes they find Jesus in really unexpected places. Like, really? You found him there? It's like, it's like everything clicked into place when they finally added Jesus to the picture. With him in place, they finally understood these stories like they never had before. So, for example, verse 3 of our passage today refers to Jesus as the radiance of God's glory. Now, do you remember, you remember how God's glory was sort of pictured or described in the Hebrew Bible? It was like, you remember the pillar of cloud by, by day and the pillar of fire at night that led God's people through the wilderness out of Egypt? right? Or um, when Moses went up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, right? God's glory descended on the mountain. There's like kind of this storm cloud up there. Or like later on, um, when Solomon's temple is dedicated, God's glory comes down in like the form of a cloud. I don't know if you remember all these. Anyway, you might remember that anytime one of these things is mentioned, whenever God's glory appeared in the Hebrew Bible, there was a sense of danger and, and awe. So like, whenever God's glory shows up, like people are bowing to the ground, or like people are even dying because they're coming too close to it. And then there's this strange story from Exodus chapter 34. Um, so Moses has been up on this mountain with the storm cloud all around. Um, and he comes down from uh, Mount Sinai, it was called. He's got God's law on these tablets in his hands. And his face is glowing. 
Like it's glowing because he's been so near the glory of God. His face is glowing so brightly that he needs to wear like a veil when, when he comes down from the mountain. Otherwise, like people can't be anywhere near him. Famous story, interesting story. Now flip over to 2 Corinthians 3. So this is on page 1209 in your, uh, in your pew Bible. 2 Corinthians 3. So this is the New Testament. And Paul, he's talking about that same story. So Moses' glowing face, the veil. Um, and he says that the glory of Jesus is far greater than that glory. For one, he says, it's even more glorious because unlike the glow on Moses' face, Jesus' glory doesn't fade. Like it's not reflected glory, it is the glory of God itself in Jesus. And then look at verse 12. It says, therefore, since we, and he's talking about the Christian church, since we have such a hope, like a, like a lasting hope, an unfading hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the, the radiance was even fading away. But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. So Old Covenant would be a way of describing sort of God's plan in the Hebrew Bible. The veil has not been removed because only in Christ is the veil taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, so reading Moses, that's a reference to the first five books of the Bible, the ones that were considered the most important in the Hebrew Bible. Even when they are being read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. You see what Paul's doing? He's saying that before we meet Jesus, we can only see God's glory reflected. We can only see God's glory through a veil. It's another way of saying we can only see God in pieces in the Hebrew Bible. But now that Jesus has come, we can see God's glory fully. And this is why I have the bias I have. Okay? I have this bias because I think it's been the church's bias since its very earliest days. What we see in these New Testament letters, which, I mean, really what, what they are for us is they are a glimpse into the life and situation of that early church, right? What we see is that these devout Jews started finding Jesus everywhere they looked. They discovered that it was the same God who was working in the Old Testament as is working now in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And knowing Jesus enhanced their understanding of these old, old stories that they'd known from childhood. Jesus deepened their meaning. Knowing Jesus transformed how they understood all of it. I mean, really, this is a testament to what a big deal Jesus is. I mean, the early church pastors and teachers became convinced deep in their bones that who Jesus is and what he had done had changed everything. That from this point on, no great story could be told and no great story could even be retold without in some way making reference to Jesus. Without whispering his name. All great stories now needed a Jesus bias. And now here's what's so cool if Jesus is your bias. Okay? So you know the things that we love to talk about in church. 
God's grace, uh, his forgiveness, his mercy, his love. Man, when, when every story whispers his name, that stuff comes up all the time. Even when we are faced, facing like the, the depths of human depravity, right? I mean, the worst humanity has to offer. Even when we are confronted with like the darkest moments of our suffering, the darkest valleys of the shadow of death, if every story whispers his name, then every story has hope. Every story has an angle of redemption because every story points us to our Redeemer. You know, someone asked me after one of my Ecclesiastes sermons, it was a fair question. Um, it, was, it was a pretty grim passage that the sermon was based on. And they asked if I always had to end my sermons like positively, like if I always had to end my sermons with some kind of resolution in Jesus. And here's the thing, if every story whispers his name, then yes, I do. If every story whispers his name, if we believe he is who he said he is, and he did what he said he did, and he will do what he says he will do, then you cannot help but see hope leaking into even the darkest places in this world. And this is where it gets really good. Because just as every story of the Bible whispers his name, I believe every story of everyone in this church whispers his name. Now, I will say, you may feel like Jesus is nowhere to be found in your life. You might look at your life and be like, I don't know, I don't see it there. You may feel lost or discouraged or frustrated or filled with doubt or fear or despair. You may feel like change is impossible, like this hope stuff is an illusion. You may find yourself in the darkest moments of suffering or or just like the deepest depravity of sin. But if I know anything about Jesus... I know that he is not riding the bench in the story of your life. You may not know how he fits in the story right now. You may not have seen it. You may not have been able to name it yet. Sometimes, to be honest, we find him in really unexpected places. But he's been there since (laughs) tip-off. He's been there since page one of your story. And that means even in whatever you're going through, and Let's be clear, it would be hard for your life to be crazier than the stuff you read in the Hebrew Bible, okay? Whatever you're going through, every story, even yours, whispers his name. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes of faith. That uh, we would not just hear this, but that we could see it. That, that we could uh, hear the whisper with our own ears, that we could sense your movement and your working, that we would not have this feeling of, of our lives being incomplete or insufficient or inadequate on their own, but we would see how you bring our lives to their completion. You make them what they were meant to be from the beginning. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see you working and that you would change our hearts, that we would participate in what you are doing. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.